you and your salvation, what do you think you would come up with? How much grace is there in God's salvation? Now, if you were thinking clearly, you would have to conclude, if you, have, if you were sober-minded, that is, you'd have to conclude that the grace of God is immeasurably great. There is no bottom to the well. <laughs> it's infinitely great as God is great, right? Incomprehensibly, immeasurably great. And that's what we say when we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Amazing grace is appropriate for that song. Yet, if you are anything like me, and I think you are in some ways, <laughs> you will find that you have a tendency to forget and to lose sight of the grace of God. How often have you felt like God's grace was just grace rather than amazing grace? We become distracted when we lose sight of the grace of God and we turn our attention away from it when our sight of the grace of God in the cross and his great sacrifice for us and, and, and God with us <laughs> laying down his life for us when, when, when we fail to see him when we become distracted the grace becomes less than amazing in our sight and the result is that other things look amazing to us, don't they? It, it just happens that way, doesn't it? Where other things begin to look amazing to us. This is a common danger that we all face every day, in one sense, every moment of the day, don't we? In this great battle that we're engaged in. Why do we tend to move away from the amazement of the grace of God? You know, if we are to ever fight well, if we are to live well in light of the grace of God, we need to ask ourselves, why do we tend to do this? Why does it often cease to amaze us? And I think one of the main reasons is because we forget who God is. We forget his character forget his goodness. We forget his greatness. And we forget what the Bible says about our condition. We forget that we are dead in our sins apart from Christ. That we are slaves of sin. That we are at enmity with God. And we forget how God saves us. That God saves us through a, a sovereign miracle. I think that's why we tend to lose sight of the grace of God. And so verses and passages like the one we're looking at today remind us of how amazing God's grace really is. We need these passages. We need to hear from Jesus because in passages like this, we are reminded about how amazing God's grace is. We need this desperately today. It magnifies the grace of God before our eyes. They're designed to make us marvel at the grace of God in such a way that we will never stop marveling 
throughout eternity. That's how great the grace of God is. Let me give you a warning. Just like last week, we are headed right back into a very controversial subject. And this is the value of preaching verse by verse. You see, if you get mad at me, you'll get less mad at me because I didn't pick this passage. It was right here in front of me. I had to preach it. And so I'm going to do the very best I can to preach it. And that's all I'm called to do. I'm not trying to stir up controversy, but it does sometimes. So you can continue to see the heart of the condition of man, of all men, you should say, by looking at how the Jews responded to Jesus' gracious invitation. And this time, their unbelief takes the form of grumbling in verses 41 through 42. So we are looking at the heart condition of all men by looking at the response to Jesus' invitation. We read in verse 41 that the Jews grumbled about him. So what does it mean to grumble? Well, one source told me that to mutter means to whisper displeasure and to mutter complaints. And in fact, I was told that the Greek word sounds just like what it means. It sounds like to mutter and to whisper complaints. So grumbling is always the outward expression of an unbelieving heart. All right? When there is grumbling, if it is true grumbling, a real, genuine grumbling, it's the expression of an unbelieving heart. The root of grumbling is unbelief. So you can always trace it back to a heart that is not believing and that is rebellious against God whenever there is grumbling, even when it's against someone else. So what we see here is that Jesus, as he's revealing himself more and more, is getting an even stronger and more angry response to him. The more he reveals himself, the more the antagonistic side of those against him comes out more and more until he's crucified. You see, here he's gr they're grumbling, and we'll see in verse 52 that they're disputing. In other words, they're battling each other with their words. And so they fight each other with their words after this. And so it gets worse and worse and worse until eventually they will crucify Jesus. And you've got to remember, they, Jesus had kind of put them in a corner. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead, right? And so there's nothing they can do at this point but crucify Jesus. They have to get rid of him. And so you can see the more he reveals about himself, the more angry the people become. So what are they grumbling about? Why are they grumbling about Jesus here? And we're told, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So they were grumbling, not primarily because he said, I am the bread, but because he said, I came down from heaven. He has already said he is the bread, right? But to say I came down from heaven is a really difficult concept for them to receive. And so the question is, what does it mean to have come down from heaven? What's so significant about that phrase? And what that means is that Jesus is claiming that he came from God. 
What he's claiming is that he is God with us. That he is deity. That's what it means to say, I have come down from heaven. He's saying, that's my abode. And I have come down to you. The incarnation. <laughs> right? So he is not only what they need. He's not only the bread that they need to eat in order to be saved, but he's also God. He has come down. Actually, Jesus said a very similar statement to Nicodemus, if you remember in John 3, verse 13. Now, it shouldn't surprise us at all that they have a justification for their grumbling, right? We all have justification for our unbelief, right? And so we're told what their justification is in verse 42. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? So there's their justification. And it actually sounds pretty good, doesn't it, when you think about it? We know his father. We watched him grow up. It is not logical for him to claim to have come from heaven. He didn't come from heaven. Scientifically, we saw him with our eyes grow up. We know where he comes from. He is lying. There is no way he came from heaven. We saw him, right? So you can understand this logic that they're making. And maybe you would even be there yourself. Right? Defies logic itself for him to claim to be from heaven. We know his family. Such rational people. Does this type of behavior ring a bell for you? Does this grumbling remind you of something else? Like father, like son? <laughs> this is the same exact thing that happened to their fathers as they wandered through the wilderness. They were grumbling the same way. They were acting just like their ancestors did towards God. They are not much different than their forefathers even though they would imagine themselves to be very different. God did wonders for them, revealing who he was, showing his goodness. And the next moment, they grumbled against him. You see, the unbelief that we see here in the grumbling against Jesus is the natural response of fallen man to the truth of God's word. And it reveals how terrible of a condition we are in. Man, at his best, is irrational and rebellious against God. And he thinks he is smart and he is religious. What an incredible problem we have. There is a huge problem here. And understand this, there is no excuse for man's failure to see Jesus here. There's no excuse. The message of God is foolishness to the world. We cannot discern it. Man does not accept God and his teaching in their natural condition. And this tells us we desperately need God's grace. So the unbelief of the people that we see here 
that they're expressing right here sets the stage for Jesus to reveal the profound greatness of man's need for God's grace. So what we've seen here is just the stage being set for Jesus to respond and to express how desperately we need the grace of God and how great the grace of God is in our salvation. So I hope you're ready for your mind to explode at just how great the grace of God is in our salvation. Because that's what Jesus is going to express in verses 43 through 46. So first Jesus tells them to stop grumbling in verse 43. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. <laughs> I think Jesus is just saying, stop it. <laughs> grumbling is awful. It's rebellious. It's wrong. And it reveals your unbelieving hearts. Jesus just says, stop it. You have to keep in mind, Jesus is God with us, right? And he's making the most persuasive argument you can possibly make. He's Jesus. <laughs> he's God. Along with performing these great miracles. And all of this is made known to the Jewish people who were supposed to be the ones who would see him and respond appropriately. Yet they do not come and their unbelief becomes more evident and more um, evident as they grumble against God. So what are we to do with this? That's the question. What are we to do with this grumbling and this unbelief? How are, do, how are we to explain this? And Jesus explains their predicament in verse 44. He explains what's going on. He gives his spiritual prognosis. In doing so, he reveals the greatness of the grace that's required for anyone to believe and be saved. Let me read verse 44. And just listen to what it says here. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It seems that every time Jesus speaks, every time he opens his mouth, he says something that's incredibly surprising. <laughs> every time I'm like, I did not expect him to say that. And in fact, we might ask, why does Jesus have to say things that are so difficult? As someone said at this point, this is what divides churches. This is what brings forth denominations, right? This is what makes people angry. But what Jesus says here is absolutely necessary if you are ever to understand the greatness of God's grace. So you need to hear this today. So what does it mean that no one can come to me in the me being Jesus unless the condition, the Father who sent me draws him? So to understand what this means, you need to first remember what it means to come to Jesus. To come to Jesus is equivalent to believe in Jesus. And I'm just going to bring you back to verse 35. Remember, these are parallel statements. To come to Jesus is parallel to believe in Jesus. We said that last week. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The hunger and the thirst are parallel points. If you believe in him, you have come to him. If you come to him, you believe in him. They're the same thing. All right? So we need to understand that to begin with. 
So if no one can believe in Jesus unless the Father draws him, that means there is a serious problem with man's willingness and ability to believe on the message on his own. What this is telling us is there's something wrong with man in his condition. That there's something that keeps him from willingly coming to Christ Jesus when the message is given. He will not come to Jesus. That's a big problem. That's the biggest problem. When the message is brought out there, man will not come to Jesus on his own. That's what Jesus is saying here. You can understand perfectly well why man responds this way to Jesus' invitation if you understand the condition of man that's described throughout scriptures. All right? It really just simply makes sense if you look at scriptures in general. Let me read you a few of the ways that scriptures describes the condition of man. We are described as dead in our sins. Ephesians 2 verse 1. We are described as slaves to unrighteousness. You might say imprisoned to unrighteousness. We can't free ourselves from it. We are separated from God's favor. Colossians 1 verse 21. We are enemies of God, hostile to God. He is enemies of us and we are enemies of his. That's what the Bible says in our fallen condition. According to Romans 5 verse 10 and 8 verse 7. We are spiritually blind, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4. We wouldn't see the spiritual truths that are before us. We can't see them because we're blind to them. We are unable to please God in any way, Romans 8 verse 8. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, right? And to be in a state of unbelief is to not be able to act in faith. <laughs> so you, someone who is unbelieving, no matter if they did what appears to be the greatest thing in the world, God is angry at that. Because it's done in unbelief. We are incapable of understanding spiritual truth. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14, John 14, 17. Are you getting this? This is so radically different than the world around us would tell us. But this is what the Bible says. This means that unless God does something decisive, no one would ever willingly respond positively to his invitation. And notice Jesus has been giving the invitation throughout this scriptures. He doesn't hesitate to give the invitation. And the reason is because we don't want to come to him. That's why we won't come. A dead man who is hostile to God is unwilling to respond positively to his invitation. Someone who is in bondage to sin is unable to respond in a free way to his invitation. As we said last week, man's will is not free, it's in bondage. But here is the grace of God, all right? Now I'm bringing you to this amazing grace now, okay? It's not going to make sense without this first point that we have already um, described and discussed. I'm bringing you to the grace of God. Jesus says that if the Father draws you, you will come to him. A condition has to be met if anyone is to come to Jesus in saving faith. The condition is that you must be drawn. And if you are drawn, you will come, meaning believe in Jesus. So if you are drawn to him, that's the condition. If you are drawn to him, if that condition is met, if, 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 Jesus, if God draws you to Jesus, right, the condition 
you will come to him. That's the response. The response is you will come to him. Everyone whom he draws comes because the drawing is a decisive factor for the coming. If he did not draw you this way irresistibly, you or I or anyone else would never come to him in the first place. This means that you nor I are the decisive factor in coming to Jesus. God is the decisive factor. Now it's important to understand when I say this. Let me, let me just clarify something here. This drawing doesn't work in opposition to the will of man. All right? That's where a lot of times there's confusion out there. And Jesus is not saying here, the engagement of the will is not necessary for salvation. It's the very opposite. Instead, when anyone comes to Christ, they will come willingly without constraint. They will want to come to Jesus. No one is ever forced to come to Jesus against their will and be saved. The engagement of the will is necessary for salvation. In fact, a necessary ingredient to genuine faith, saving faith, is a willing heart. It's not really faith if you don't have a willing heart. You see, faith sees Jesus as all-glorious. It sees Jesus as that greatest of all treasures, and it says, I want Jesus. That's what faith is. So without the willingness, you do not have saving faith. That is why an aspect of saving grace is a miraculous changing of the heart and its desires to align with the truth. So that when you hear the truth, you are drawn irrevocably to it. God powerfully works to make you alive. You were dead. God powerfully works to make you alive. You couldn't hear. God powerfully works to give you ears and to give you eyes, right? And give you a heart that's new and changing and becoming like him. So that you begin to see him and you begin to hear him and you begin to love him. And you begin to think rationally for the first time in your life. And your heart begins to beat for the truth of God. What an awesome work of God in salvation. So when you hear the gospel message, you might struggle greatly and for a long time, but eventually you will come willingly, surrendering yourself to him because you want to come. And you can do no other. Let me give you an illustration of how I understand this drawing to be like. Imagine that the gospel, and this is a, a strange illustration, isn't it, for where we're at. It's kind of like bread. Imagine if it's like bread, right? <laughs> Good, life-sustaining, necessary bread to keep you alive. And, and to keep you alive for eternity. So Jesus extends the offer of this bread to everyone, doesn't he? He invites them to eat of this bread and live forever because they need it. But guess what? Everyone hates it. They don't like it. It doesn't taste good to them. They look at it and they're like, that's disgusting. I'm dead to it. <laughs> I have no interest in it at all. And the problem is not the bread. It's them. The, the problem is worse than they ever thought it was. That is the essence of sin. Jesus could offer you this bread outwardly, externally, for a million years and no one would ever respond to it because they hate it, right? But when God draws someone, it's compelling because it is accompanied with a new heart change. 
He gives a heart that has begun to love what is good and right. They're like, I need this bread to survive. It looks amazing. What was I thinking? This bread is everything I need. And it humbles itself for the first time. It bows its knees to Jesus. And it says, there is salvation in no other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which I must be saved. And why is it that I see it? But I see it. It's true. Because God has done a work in your heart. To think otherwise at that point would sound ridiculous. Now another interpretation of this passage that some people take is that God draws everyone who has ever lived to the same level or position where they can make their own decisive decisions to believe or not. And so what this position says is that man's will is drawn by God to the point that it is either good or at least least neutral, right? It, It comes to a point where they can Uh, for the first time be neutral. Everybody is in the same position and can either choose God or not choose God. The drawing here, what they say, is that it puts you at a position where you can do one or the other. Right? In such a case, the most virtuous thing for God to do is not to violate man's free will. To be fair, he must preserve an equal playing field for everyone. Which is an interesting thought in itself. Most would interpret it that way. But I don't think we should ever interpret things based on the uh, majority opinion of man. I don't think we should ever do a poll and say, what do most people think about a passage? Rather, we need to know what scriptures is saying. So I am saying, on the other hand, that man will not choose God when it is offered salvation because his will is in bondage to sin. Therefore, God has to graciously intervene by taking decisive, saving action to draw people decisively to himself. God is the decisive factor for the salvation of any man. Therefore, if anyone believes, and get this, this is where we're going with this, it is all of the grace of God. It is entirely the grace of God. This preserves the grace of God. That's why this is so important. All who are left in their unbelief will receive the justice they deserve. So in the end, this is the way it is. God is gracious to some, and gives justice to others. But no one is ever going to get what they don't deserve at the end of the day. God remains just and righteous and good. And Jesus is not saying both of these things. Let's be clear on that. So let me give you a further support from other passages of Scripture from John for why I'm convinced that Jesus is saying here that he brings a decisive calling to himself. The first confirmation comes from uh, verse 37. Let me read this verse. We read it last week. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So what verse 44 is saying is largely parallel to what verse 37 is saying, just in a negative way. Right? In verse 44, you might say is a negative counterpart to verse 37. In verse 37, we're told that God gives a specific people to Jesus who will come to him, right? It's absolutely clear that those group that, Jesus, that, that the Father has given Jesus before time began, sovereignly, electingly, will come to Jesus, and he will keep them. They will be saved. And so I think we are to see the same group given to the Son in verse 37 as the same group drawn to the Son in verse 44. I don't think these are two different groups. Therefore, if it is true that verse 37 
all who are given will be, will be, uh, will be kept by him, then I would say verse 44 is irrevocable as well. They will come. All who are given will come to him, just as all who are drawn will come to him and be saved. The second confirmation comes from verse 63 through 65. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you. Now listen to what he says here. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So what he says here, and we already know this, and we're getting here actually in a, in a few weeks. The flesh is of no help at all. <laughs> well, yes, we've already discussed that. We've already found that to be true. The spirit, on the other hand, gives life. Right? We all already agree on that. We've discussed that at length today. There's an insert added by the author of John saying that Jesus knew who was going to believe in him in verse 64, or who was not going to believe in him, I should say. And that's referring to Judas. He's referring to Judas, the one who would betray him, right? Then Jesus explains why Judas wouldn't believe. He refers back to verse 44 as the reason. So here, he's referring back to verse 44 that we just read right now, the same passage. Because he was not drawn by the Father. That's the reason Jesus gives. Because he was not granted by the Father. Granted and drawn are parallel points here. They're to be understood as parallel to each other. So Jesus in verse 65 explicitly refers to verse 44 to explain Judas' unbelief. He was left in his selfishness. He was left in his unbelief. That's why Judas would betray him. The third confirmation is John 8, verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Right? You do not hear because you are not given to me. If you were of God, you would listen to me. The fourth confirmation is John 10, verse 25 through 30. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He says, you're not able to believe because you are not of my flock. The sheep who are given to me are those who believe and follow me. The decisive factor why you do not believe is because you are not my sheep. The fifth confirmation is John 12, verse 37 through 40. And this is the final one, because we've got to get going. <laughs> Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Whatever this passage is saying here, it is clearly not saying that Jesus draws everyone to himself the same way. That's absolutely clear. 
Man is not the decisive factor. Rather, God is the decisive factor in drawing people to himself. So at the end of the statement in verse 44, Jesus adds a comment about his role in the work of salvation. Look, look at this comment. And this comment both magnifies the grace of God towards us and confirms further that this drawing is decisive. All right? Listen to what he says. And I will raise him up on the last day. So this statement is actually a similar statement he makes three times throughout this chapter. In verse 39 through 40, 44, and 54. He continues to point out his keeping work of those whom the Father has given to him. And the statement also confirms that the drawing is decisive and irrevocable. All who the Father draws to Jesus, he will raise up. Everyone who is drawn to him, he will raise up. That's decisive. Every single person. Jesus is committed to raising up all who are in this group who are drawn. The statement, therefore, gives us assurance and magnifies the grace of God in our salvation. Those who are his cannot be lost. That is amazing grace, isn't it? It's not just before time began, it's also to the very end throughout eternity. God will raise you up. Be assured, believer, if you are resting in Jesus, that he will keep you and he will raise you. Jesus supports or explains the type of drawing that he accomplishes in verse 45 with an Old Testament quote. So he actually both explains and supports his point here with an Old Testament quote. Verse 45, It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 54, verse 13. Listen to what it says. And he's basically, when he, this quote is basically a restatement in different words from verse, of, of verse 44. Okay, just listen to it. All your sons will be taught by the Lord, and great will be your children's peace. So what does it mean that they will all be taught by God? What kind of teaching is this? And clearly the teaching here is not merely an external teaching that we're talking about. This is an internal teaching. This is God teaching the heart, shaping and molding the heart. That's the teaching we're talking about here. So how do we know this? And we know this because the language that is used here is how the Old Testament would speak of the New Covenant. This is New Covenant teaching. And so you ask, how does that help us understand what kind of teaching this is referring to? Let me refer you to Jeremiah 31, 31. And it will show us that the teaching here is clearly, without a doubt, the New Covenant teaching where God will teach the heart. Not just an external teaching that will not be heard, but an internal teaching that is heard and that changes us, okay? Jeremiah 31, 33-34. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. So how then does this quote help us understand how God draws people to Jesus? Well, it shows that God draws people to Jesus through teaching their hearts, through inward teaching. The only way we will be changed is if God teaches our hearts. 
in such a decisive way as we're speaking of here in the new covenant realities. It is through this heart teaching that God draws people to embrace his son. Jesus follows the quote from Isaiah by explaining how it connects with verse 44 by saying that everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So do you see that? He's saying everyone who has heard and learned from the Father in this teaching inward way comes to me. Irresistibly, decisively, they will come to me. My sheep hear my voice. That's the same thing that it's saying here. And they will come to him. Forever to come to Jesus, we need this teaching from God that reaches the heart. We need the drawing that comes from the teaching of the inner man. All here, but not all here. Now notice this is similar to what Jesus said to Peter when Peter made the great confession in Matthew 16, 17. Listen to these words, and it's very similar to what we're looking at here. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's the inward new covenant teaching that Jesus is talking about here. You can conclude, therefore, as Bruce writes, those who receive this divine illumination and respond to it show by their coming to Christ that they are children and citizens of the new Jerusalem, as the prophet foretold. Jesus makes an important clarification about where this teaching comes from in verse 46. He says, Not that anyone has seen the Father except he was from God, he has seen the Father. So what does it mean that Jesus alone has seen the Father? It means that he alone can speak with authority about the Father and heavenly things. It means that he alone can tell us about salvation. It means that he can alone speak the truth about what salvation means and what salvation entails, and no one else can. He alone is the mediator of heavenly knowledge. He alone narrates God to us. That's what that means. This, mean you can, this means you can identify those who are taught by God internally based on how they respond to Jesus' teaching. How you respond to Jesus' teaching reveals whether or not you have this internal teaching in your heart from God. So my question for you is this. How great is the grace of God in your salvation? How great is the grace of God? Just think about it. How deep does the well go? Does this passage at all magnify the grace of God in your salvation? It shows you that you are helpless to come to him on your own. You were in a pretty terrible condition, weren't you? You needed a decisive drawing from God to come to him. And if you believe, he has graciously come to you and has drawn you to his son. And guess what? He doesn't stop there. He has promised to keep you. He will raise you up on the last day. Is that grace? No. That's amazing grace. That's grace incomprehensible, unfathomable, indescribable. So what effect should it have on you if you see the greatness of the grace of God? Well, you get it. We're beginning to get it if his grace provokes humility in your heart. The fact that God saved a rebellious creature like you and me should make us the most humble people in the world. Now, we are going to struggle with pride throughout the rest of our lives, 
But there is no place for pride in a believer. We should be fighting it and we should be battling it with our whole minds and whole hearts. And keeping this in mind will help drive the remaining pride away from us. His grace should also provoke praise and thanksgiving to God. We have no reason to do anything but be thankful to God and praise God for his goodness. We should be the most thankful people in the whole world. If we're not, we're missing something. (laughs) We will be if we get this. His grace should provoke you to love others in supernatural, God-like ways. I, I, I just read this verse this week, or thought of this verse, and I had to read it at this point. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. 1 John 3, verse 1. If Jesus has loved you so much, how can you ever treat anyone any less than how he has treated you? How can you ever not forgive someone? They have done far less to you than what you've done to Jesus. And Jesus has forgiven you far more than what they have ever done to you. So we will forgive others if we understand what Jesus has done for us. We will love others. We will not overlook others. We will not be selfish people if we understand what Christ has done for us. How you treat others is, in fact, a reflection of how well you understand the gospel, isn't it? His grace should provoke all of us to speak of this great salvation to believers and unbelievers alike. There is nothing in all of life that compares to this. What else would be worthy of our contemplation and what else would be worthy of our conversation than the gospel of the grace of God? A Savior who is crucified, who went, humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on the cross to save those who had no interest in him so that we might be called children of God and who's committed to bringing you safely into his kingdom for eternity. His offer of grace should provoke you to cry out to God to save you. And if you do, he promises that he will. Verse 47 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, whoever believes has eternal life. So please, Cry out to God today. There is salvation in no other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is a great Savior, and he loves to save. Cry out to him. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, your word is not easy to hear. It is really hard. It stands against everything that we naturally love and everything that we naturally think is good and right. But Lord, your word is so good for us. Lord, it is life to our souls. God, I pray that we would see the life-giving truths today. I pray that we would rejoice in the great salvation that you've brought to us. I pray that you would compel us to proclaim your great name this week, wherever we go. Lord, give us boldness 
to speak to those who are dying and headed right towards an eternal judgment. Help us to speak the truth that there is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And help us to trust you that you will work according to your purposes and your will. But Lord, give us boldness and give us faithfulness. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a love for our fellow believers, a love that constrains us to speak of these truths for the good and well-being of those around us. Lord, help us to encourage each other by reminding them of this great salvation that you have brought to us. There is nothing more that we need to hear than these truths today. In Jesus' name, amen.